0: Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. During the summer of 480 BCE, the Persians bore down on Greece. Many historians estimate that their combined land and sea forces represented the largest invasion of Europe until the D-Day landings of June 1944. For much of its march through Thrace and down into Macedon and Thessaly, the Imperial Army kept close to the coast. Just offshore sailed the Imperial Armada. Following their initial abortive effort to face the Persians at the Vale of Tempe, the Greeks of the resistance met again to plot a new course of action. The imminent arrival of the enemy must have served to concentrate their minds. Moreover, through the reports of their spies and the information passed on to them by Alexander of Macedon, they had a realistic appreciation of the immensity of the forces arrayed against them. They now determined to make their stand at the Pass of Thermopylae. It was the only pass that the Persian army could take in order to reach central and southern Greece. Crucially, the pass was exceedingly narrow, far more so than the Vale of Tempe. We need to banish from our mind's eye the Thermopylae of today. The wide alluvial plain there now is the product of centuries of silting by the Sperchaios and other local rivers. 2,500 years ago, Thermopylae was, at its narrowest point, a defile perhaps 20 meters wide. Herodotus describes it as little more than a cartway. On one side rose up the steep slopes of the mountains. On the other, the ground dropped away to the sea. In such constricted terrain, the Persian advantages of massive numbers and superb cavalry were completely nullified. The Thermopylae position had one final, absolutely essential advantage. It allowed the Greek army to mount a coordinated defense with the Greek navy. Sixty kilometers offshore of the pass was the northern point of the Long Island of Euboea. The point was named Artemisium, after a local shrine of the goddess Artemis. Behind the point opened a wide bay, the finest harbor in the region, which could shelter the Greek resistance's entire fleet of triremes. From there, the fleet was perfectly placed to challenge the southward advance of the Persian armada. Barry Strauss, a leading authority on ancient warfare, has called the position at Artemisium a strategist's triumph, and he speculates that Themistocles might have chosen it personally. By deciding to make their stand on the Thermopylae-Artemisium line, the members of the Greek resistance had finally come up with a comprehensive and coherent strategy to defeat the Persians. They were fighting a forward defense to block the invaders from reaching the heartlands Of central and southern Greece. More importantly, they were fighting for time. Great King Xerxes, the Greeks must have realized, had both political and practical imperatives for a quick victory. Politically, because he ruled his empire personally, Xerxes could not remain on campaign in distant and remote Greece for very long. If he did so, he risked his empire's administration falling into disorder or even rebellion breaking out somewhere. Thus, he had to return to his capitals to retake the reins of government as soon as possible. Practically, the great king's invasion forces consumed staggering amounts of food, water, and fodder. This was the case not only for the army, but for the fleet as well, which, as we've seen, had just as many men. Persian quartermasters were expert at gathering supplies from occupied territories. Even so, if the army and fleet became stuck in one place too long, they would eat out and drink up the surrounding countryside like biblical locusts. They would then have no choice except to move on or perish slowly from starvation and thirst. If the Greeks could drag out their defense of the Thermopylae Artemisium axis, the Persians might eventually be forced to give up and go away. The success of this strategy depended on the Greek army and the Greek navy protecting each other. On the one hand, If the army gave way at Thermopylae, the Persians would then be able to overrun the navy's bases in southern Greece. On the other hand, if the navy was defeated at Artemisium, the Persian fleet would have been free to get behind and cut off the army at the pass. Because each of its ships carried 30 Persian and Saka marines, the fleet would have been able to land a formidable force of around 36,000 men. The Greek resistance planned to commit all available forces to the Thermopylae-Artemisium line. The core of the army would be provided by Sparta and its allies of the Peloponnesian League. When fully mobilized, as they were for Plataea the next year, the Spartans could put 10,000 hoplites into line. The Peloponnesian allies added around 15,000 more. The majority of the fleet, about 180 triremes, was Athenian. A further 12 city-states of the Resistance Alliance furnished 100 additional warships. As the alliance's leading military power, The Spartans insisted they exercise overall command. One of Sparta's two kings would lead the army. Surprisingly, a Spartan would also command at sea, even though the city's naval contribution amounted to a paltry ten ships. The admiral of the fleet was Eurybiades, a high-ranking Spartan officer. But he was little more than a figurehead. The real naval strategist was Themistocles. Even as those decisions were being made, and preparations set in motion, the greek gods intervened or rather the greeks' belief in their gods as the persians approached in august 480 bce the greeks found themselves on the eve of the olympic festival held every 4 years the festival and its games were dedicated to zeus most powerful of gods for pious greeks zeus had to be given his due therefore participating in his games overrode all other considerations even foreign invasion furthermore The Spartans were simultaneously observing the Carnea, the very same religious festival that had prevented them from marching to Marathon ten years previously. The twin festivals represented a religious, strategic, and military nightmare for the Greek resistance. With the Spartans staying home, no other Greek polis dared to send its troops to Thermopylae. Yet, if they waited until the Olympics and Carnea were over, the Persians would be through the pass and in the process of conquering southern Greece. Could all this have been planned by the Persians? Great King Xerxes certainly had access to plenty of information about the Greeks and their religion. In addition to what he learned from the spies of the Persians' espionage networks, he could also consult his Greek vassals and exiles in his entourage such as the Spartan Demaratus. Yet I find it unlikely the Persians could have counted on invading at exactly the time when the Greek resistance would have been disarmed by the religious truce. Just getting their massive army and fleet to Greece intact and with enough of the campaigning season left over to carry out the conquest of the country was a substantial strategic and logistical accomplishment. Arriving at a precise moment was something beyond even the Persians' capabilities. Instead, the timing of the Persian invasion with the Olympian and Carnean festivals was a coincidence that worked out beautifully for great King Xerxes. The Greeks' nightmarish dilemma was solved by the Spartans. At this moment of supreme crisis, the city's authorities decided they could send a special task force to Thermopylae without bringing down divine wrath. This force would be commanded by Spartan royalty in the person of King Leonidas. It consisted of 300 hopelites picked from the whole Spartan citizen phalanx, Herodotus adds one further key detail about the 300. They were all mature men with sons. Because the historian offers no explanation for it, this detail has been endlessly debated ever since. Two conclusions, I think, can be drawn. First, as most other readers of Herodotus have concluded, the Spartans chose men who already had sons in order to ensure that no citizen family would be wiped out. The task force was setting out on a particularly dangerous mission, and casualties were bound to be very high. Second, as a mature man, each of the 300 would have been a seasoned, combat hardened veteran. Leonidas's force was therefore small in size, but high in fighting quality. With the Spartans now in the field, led by one of their kings, the other members of the resistance agreed to contribute small forces of their own. The allies of the Peloponnesian League together provided 4,000 hopelites principal city-state of Boeotia, Thebes, which, as we've seen, was on the brink of Medizing, dispatched just 400 hopelites. Moreover, Herodotus implies that these Thebans were present only because Leonidas had compelled them to come as a guarantee of their fellow citizens' good behavior. In other words, they were hostages of a sort. No similar questions of loyalty or zeal applied to the contingent supplied by another Boeotian polis, Thespiae. It sent out its entire phalanx of 700 hoplites. Finally, the Greeks who lived around the Pass of Thermopylae, the Locrians and Phocians, sent all their available men to join up with Leonidas. Leonidas's force had a maximum strength of 8,000 men. This number represented just one fifth of the total that the resistance could put into the field and would for the Battle of Plataea. The Spartan contingent was especially modest, just 3% of their army. What did the members of the Greek resistance possibly expect to accomplish with such a token force? Herodotus tells us that Leonidas's force was intended to be an advance guard that would occupy Thermopylae and hold off the Persians. Once the religious festivals were over, the main Greek army would rush up to reinforce Leonidas and his men. John Lazenby notes that the full moon of August would have signaled the end of both the Olympics and the Carnea. Leonidas and his advance guard would have had to hold out at Thermopylae for no more than a fortnight before being reinforced for their part, the Athenians would have nothing to do with a token force or advance guard instead, their entire fleet of one hundred and eighty triremes rode north to take up station at Artemisium. There they were joined by the Spartan admiral Eurybiades and the rest of the resistance squadrons. The Athenians were no less pious than the Spartans. Yet they understood they were in even greater danger. If the Persian invaders broke through at Thermopylae Artemisium, they would make straight for Athens. Only after taking the city would they complete the conquest of Greece by moving on the Peloponnese and Sparta. This knowledge of impending mortal peril surely convinced the Athenians that they had to set aside any taboo against warfare imposed by the Olympics. In this regard, they received invaluable assistance from the pronouncement of the Delphic Oracle. As we've noted, Themistocles had convinced his fellow citizens that they ought to interpret it as a divine command to resist the invaders at sea. In the brilliant light and scorching heat of deep summer, King Leonidas led his men to Thermopylae. Unfortunately, we know very little about Leonidas before his dramatic actions at the battle. According to Paul Cartledge, one of the world's leading experts on the Spartans, He would have been around 50 years old in 480 BCE. He had not been destined to be king at all. Only the death of his older half-brother Cleomenes I, without male issue, had opened the way to the throne. Relatively late in life, he had married Gorgo, Cleomenes' only daughter. She had given birth to a son, Pleistarchus, who was only a boy at the time of Thermopylae. Leonidas had one more characteristic which served to further distinguish him from other Spartan kings. Traditionally, in Sparta, the crown princes of the two royal dynasties were the only males who would have been exempted from the agoge, the militarized education system. Because he had not been expected to become king, Leonidas had undergone the upbringing in all its intensity and rigor. As a result, he had the experience, ethos, and temper of the Spartan hopelite embedded in his very muscles and bones. I think that he must have had a high reputation among his fellow Spartans as a warrior and a general. For this reason, they chose him to lead the all-important task force to Thermopylae instead of the other Spartan king, Laotaikidas. Herodotus's account of Thermopylae is one of the richest and most detailed sections of his histories. It is a day-by-day, sometimes hour-by-hour record of the lead-up to the battle, the fighting itself, and the aftermath. As soon as Leonidas arrived at Thermopylae, he occupied what was called the Middle Gate. Although not the narrowest part of the pass, the local people, the Phocians, had identified the Middle Gate as the best place from which to block the pass, and had long ago built a wall for this purpose. By August 480 BCE, this wall lay in ruins. Leonidas immediately ordered his men to repair it. A possible remnant of it exists today. What Herodotus called the Phocian Wall gave the Greeks a strong position to defend. But the Spartan king then received some very alarming news. The Phocians informed him that the main pass of Thermopylae was not the only way through the mountains. A narrow path called the Annapaya snaked around the thickly forested slopes of Mount Calidromo. It began before the middle gate and ended behind it. In other words, the Greek position could be turned or outflanked. Leonidas had no choice except to assign part of his force to guard the path. The Phocians volunteered for this duty, and, in addition, swore to the Spartan king they would hold the path to the last man. Meanwhile, Great King Xerxes and his army were making their final march to Thermopylae. Fearful rumors of the advancing Persians reached the little army at the middle gate, that they were so numerous the dust kicked up by their marching feet turned day into night and that when they drank, whole rivers would dry up. Panic seized the Peloponnesians. They called on Leonidas to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow strip of land connecting the Peloponnese to the rest of mainland Greece. But the Locrians and Phocians angrily denounced this as treachery and defeatism. Leonidas sided with the local Greeks and decided the army would remain. He sent messengers to the cities of the resistance imploring them to send their reinforcements at once. The arrival of the Persians must have been both a beautiful and imposing sight. In the words of the Song of Solomon, terrible as an army with banners. The vanguard of the great king's host filled the western end of the pass. Behind it filed a seemingly endless parade of regiments drawn from all of the lands of the wide east. Their warriors wore exotic garb in every color, Many rode fantastic mounts the Greeks had never laid eyes on before. Sunlight blazed and shone off armor, shields, and spears. A buzzing cacophony rose up from drums and trumpets, flutes and cymbals, and voices shouting in a thousand barbarian tongues. But Leonidas had planned a show of his own to greet the Persians. When their mounted scouts rode up to the middle gate, they found the Spartans there. They had removed their armor and stacked their arms. Some were exercising. Others sat on the wall and combed their long hair. Spartans completely ignored the Persians and allowed them to see everything they wanted. After the scouts sped back to Xerxes and described the strange sight, he was perplexed. The great king turned to Demaratus and demanded an explanation. According to Herodotus, the exiled Spartan king replied, It is my greatest endeavor, O king, to speak truth in your presence. Now, hear me once more. These men are come to fight with us for the passage, and for that they are preparing. For it is their custom to dress up their hair whenever they are about to put their lives in jeopardy. Moreover, I tell you that if you overcome these and what remains behind at Sparta, there is no other nation among men, O king, that will abide and withstand you. Now are you face to face with the noblest royalty and city and the most valiant men in Hellas. Xerxes scoffed at Demaratus's words. He waited for four days, calculating that panic would grip the Greeks and they would flee from the pass. According to Plutarch, sometime during this period of waiting, Xerxes sent an emissary to Leonidas to demand the Greeks give up their arms. The Spartans were already famous for what the other Greeks dubbed their laconic wit, their terse yet eloquent responses. Leonidas's answer to the Persian ambassador, is one of the most famous examples. Molon labe, he said, come and take them. Another reason for the great king to wait was so that his fleet could catch up to his army. Its arrival on the fourth day must have been just as impressive and fearsome a show for the Athenians at Artemisium as the appearance of the host was for the Greeks at Thermopylae. The Athenians would have first spotted an immense cloud of multicolored sails filling the northern horizon. Then they would have seen the bright summer sun glinting off the blades of tens of thousands of oars as they dipped rhythmically in and out of the sea. At last, the sleek black shapes of the ships would have hove into view, long and low in the water, white foam flecking at their bows. The Persian fleet was so massive that none of the available local harbors could hold all of it. Instead, Its squadrons crowded anchorages in a great arc, stretching from Athetai on the mainland shore opposite Artemisium, north to Cape Sepias and beyond. The Greeks had created a line of communications between their land and sea forces. From Artemisium, a fast 30 oared galley, captained by an Athenian named Ambronikos, sped across 60 kilometers of sea to Thermopylae to inform Leonidas of the coming of the Persian armada. On the fifth day following the arrival of the Persians at Thermopylae, great King Xerxes at last realized that the Greeks had no intention of fleeing. He first had his throne set up on a spot where he had a good view of the middle gate. Then he commanded his regiments of Medes and Kissians to attack. He still underestimated the Greeks, though, because he gave his troops explicit instructions to capture them alive and bring them to him in chains. As the Medes and Kissians were massing, a local Greek raced up to the Spartans at the middle gate wall. Beware, he breathlessly warned them, the enemy are so numerous that when they loose their bows, their arrows will blot out the sun. A Spartan named Dinaches then turned to his comrades and lightheartedly declared, our friend here brings us good news. We will fight our battle in the shade. The Medes and Kissians advanced coolly and confidently toward the middle gate. They were Iranians, second only in status to the Persians themselves. Furthermore, they were fighting directly under the eye of their royal master. Unfortunately, Herodotus does not provide us with many details of the fighting itself. We can only try to reconstruct what happened, from what we know of Persian and Greek warfare, as well as the situation at Thermopylae. I imagine that the Medes and Kissians advanced to bow range of the middle gate set up a wall of their wicker shields, then shot a barrage of arrows at the Spartans. When they thought they had the enemy sufficiently softened up, squads and companies of Medes and Kissians surged out from behind their shield wall and charged forward, determined to carry out their king's orders to capture the Spartans. But the Spartans were waiting for them. The Kissians and Medes ran into a line of unyielding bronze shields and thrusting spears in the hands of the hardest, deadliest hand-to-hand fighters in the ancient world. The great king's warriors fought bravely, but Herodotus stresses that they were woefully overmatched. They retreated, leaving their dead and wounded strewn at the Phocian wall. After the defeat of these first assaults, the great king and his commanders flung more troops into the fray. The fighting lasted the rest of that hot, dusty August day. It settled into a bloody pattern, a hail of arrows, a spasm of hand-to-hand combat, thrusting spears, stabbing swords, chopping axes, then the Persians in flight with the Greeks still standing steadfast at the middle gate. So dismayed was Xerxes at the failure of his troops that he leapt off his throne three times. For his part, Leonidas rotated the various Greek contingents so that each took its turn at the wall in this way there were always fresh hope lights to face the persian onslaughts why was the persian's signature tactic their arrow storm so ineffective at thermopylae the persian imperial army had in its ranks the finest archers of the ancient world and they could shoot at the greeks at will there are three reasons i think for why the persians could do so little damage to their enemies with their preferred weapon system the first reason is that the narrow confines of the pass prevented the Persians from bringing a sufficient number of archers into line to bring down a truly overwhelming barrage of arrows. Contrary to what the local Greek had warned Dinaches, they could not, in fact, blot out the sun. The second reason is that the Phocian wall provided the defenders with excellent cover. Standing or crouching behind it, with their shields raised, the Greek hoplites left very little flesh exposed to incoming missiles. Finally, if the Persian archers closed the range to enhance the accuracy and striking power of their arrows, they made themselves vulnerable to sudden charges from the Greeks. Later in the 5th century BCE, the Spartans had their youngest, fittest hopelites run out of the phalanx to attack and chase off missile-armed enemies. They could already have been using this tactic at Thermopylae. Some of the better trained and disciplined Greek contingents in Leonidas' army, for example the 500 Tegeans, whom even the Spartans regarded as excellent hopelites could have employed similar techniques. The Battle of Thermopylae might have witnessed several marathons in miniature. At last, Great King Xerxes committed his best troops to the attack. The mauled regiments of Medes and Kissians withdrew, and the western end of the pass filled with the serried ranks of the immortals. Led by their general Hydarnus, the crack bodyguards of the Great King paraded in perfect order spears in their hands bows and arrow-packed quivers on their shoulders each guardsman wore gorgeous robes in the persian style and beneath possibly a corslet of iron scales most impressively and outlandishly to the watching greeks each wore a fortune and gold jewellery leonidas ordered his spartans to the phocian wall the first day of the battle of thermopylae would climax with a clash of warrior elites the immortals came on at two hundred meters, they halted and poured their arrows into the rows of overlapping lambda-emblazoned shields at the Phocian wall. Then they took up their spears and advanced. The Spartans now unleashed a stratagem that only they had the training and battlecraft to even contemplate attempting. Suddenly, they turned and fled, thinking they had triumphed. The Immortals surged ahead. Their order formation breaking apart as individuals in small groups raced to catch and cut down the fleeing foe at a signal, the Spartans turned, reformed their phalanx, and charged the immortals were as professional and war-hardened as any soldiers in the ancient world, but they were taken by surprise. Moreover, Herodotus stresses they were outmatched in close combat skill by the Spartans, and their spears were shorter. The carnage must have been tremendous in the end the immortals gave up and retreated, leaving the Spartans in firm possession of the pass. For the Persians, the result of the first days' fighting at Thermopylae were dispiriting. As always happened when Persian infantry fought face-to-face against Greek hoplites. they had suffered far heavier casualties than they had inflicted. In addition, they had not found an alternative to launching frontal attacks against the middle gate. On the second day of the battle. Xerxes and his generals could only repeat these attacks, hoping they would eventually wear down the Greeks by attrition, and at last achieve the desired breakthrough. But the defense remained as steadfast as ever. The pattern of attack and repulse was repeated again and again, until finally the Persians drew off. The middle gate must now have been a place of horrific sights, sounds, and smells. Piles of spear mangled Persian bodies covered by legions of swarming black flies, screams and wails from the dying, the stink of spilled entrails and voided bowels. While the great king's army was battering uselessly at Leonidas's hoplites at the middle gate, his navy was being fought to a standstill by Themistocles's triremes. In two great fleet actions, in the straits between Artemisium and the main Persian anchorage at Aphetai, the Athenians and allied Greeks sank or captured more enemy ships than they themselves lost. Worse still for the Persians, the great king's admirals had dispatched 200 ships to go around the east coast of the island of Euboea and come at Artemisium from behind. Along the way, these ships were struck by a storm and utterly destroyed. The first two days of fighting at Thermopylae appeared to vindicate the decision by the Greek resistance to send Leonidas's advance guard to hold the pass in the next part of our podcast. We will examine how the battle turned against the Greeks, Leonidas's last stand, and the consequences of Thermopylae for the Persian conquest of Greece.